One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before the big interview begins, I want to remind you that we're now producing over eight hours of advert-free podcasts every month for our socios at patreon.com forward slash graham hunter that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n for just £2.99 per month you get a weekly magazine show extra socio only big interviews plus documentary specials and when you sign up you get instant access to the entire archive enjoy the show hello football fans Welcome to another big interview. This time, it's with the wonderful Terry Gibson. I know Terry well, and I'd consider him a friend. Also, he is, without doubt, one of the best analytical eyes on televised football anywhere in Britain. You listen to him talking about La Liga in his co-commentaries, and you will learn. He's consistently articulate, bright-eyed, and worth listening to. But it wasn't for friendship or analysis that I chose him. Terry had a A smashing career. Brilliantly talented man. He coped with the ups and downs, won the FA Cup, played for Manchester United, helped coach Northern Ireland to a victory over Spain that changed the entire history of modern European football. He was a lightning fast forward. There were matches that if you could take them and bottle them up would be as good as any forward has experienced over the last 20, 30 years. But he's a right character too. Funny about his career and fascinating to listen to. For example, in part one of this big interview, Terry explains what or who scared him most when he was coming through at Spurs. He describes what it was like to play in the infamous Friday kick-ups at Spurs. They were brutal games which took place the day before big first-team matches, and he speaks honestly about how it felt to leave the club that he's always supported. In fact, he's always loved. Terry is always very, very funny. But there's still frustration in his voice as he recounts a trying time at Manchester United under Ron Atkinson and then under Sir Alex Ferguson, a manager with whom Terry did have a massive fallout before patching it up and then moving on to have big success, finally at Wimbledon. Terry, you're extremely excited right now. And it's not simply because we're... sharing a table again after so long apart at Sky and covering La Liga. You're excited because you're a Spurs man, through and through and through, am I right? Yes, very much so. And therefore, times right now look kind of sweet. Yeah, and it's kind of weird, you know, I've kind of reflected back over my life as a Spurs fan because I grew up as a Spurs fan, my dad was a Spurs fan, my uncles, my cousins, that's who I went to watch Spurs with on a regular basis and carrying a, used to carry a milk crate into the ground to stand. <laughs> All the kids had a milk crate that they could put at the front of the terraces 
So everybody passed the kids through. There was always milk crates. So I used to be right near the trainer's bench with the old West Stand. So you could see who was in the trainer's bench. So you could see over the wall? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, cause it this was, is terracing. For those who don't remember terracing. Pay on the day. Queue up. Went to games where you couldn't get in because it was sold out. Packed the sold out sign was, was up. What would you do if you turned up as a youngster and you couldn't get in? Would you sit and wait for the roar outside? Or, yeah. Because you couldn't was, go and watch it on Sky no, in the No, and there was, a, there was a big gate outside White Hart Lane on the main entrance. So it led to that it stopped you getting to the terraces. So it would take quite a while before you realised that the queue wasn't moving anymore and then the sold out sign went up and everyone jeered and off they went. So you're talking about 50 odd, 60,000 in White Hart Lane, which before it was knocked down was down to 30 odd. So it was, it, it was great. But... I grew up idolising Spurs players. I was kind of forced into Jimmy Greaves because it was just a bit before... When I started watching it, it was... Rather Chibbers than you were taught about him. Yeah, that... and when I say forced, I was encouraged by my dad. Yeah. That was the player that he you know, wanted me to be like. Because he was quite small and I was a, even at a young age, it was clear I wasn't going to be a six-footer. Um, but my, my recollection is watching Chibbers, Gilzine, Alan Mallory, Phil Bill, people like that that... Cyril Knowles? Um, Cyril, yeah. Nice yeah, one, Cyril. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, yeah. Um, Pat Jennings in goal, of course. So I grew up idolising Spurs and then getting the opportunity to go to Spurs and then getting what I believed at the time discarded by Spurs. For the rest of my football career, probably I've spent the entire length of it trying to prove Spurs wrong when really there was no need. It was just I was young and fired up, a bit of fire in my belly that, you know, I wanted to stay longer. That didn't happen. So for the rest of your career, you sort of, fired up against Spurs every time he played them. And then it was kind of nice to go back to being a fan again after all that. You know, when you're playing against the team you support, it kind of, you, you do lose that, that element of supporting that club. Even when I was, you know, playing for Coventry, that was my first club when I left Spurs. A week later, we were playing at White Hart Lane. I was so fired up, it was ridiculous. And I remember Steve Perriman talking about it years later. about I was, like, for Did you leave a couple on this. him? Not on Steve, I wouldn't, no. But I was fired up. Um, and that went on for a long period of, of my career, so you kind of lose that love, which was sad, mm-hmm. but you can't have it. If you're a professional and you're playing against them and you're competing against them, and you, you, you know, particularly for one or two of the clubs I played for, which were deemed to be smaller, so like Coventry and Wimbledon, when you go and play by Lane, it's one of the bigger games of the season, and you're the underdog and you, you've got to be fired up. So, And Wimbledon and Tottenham had a, <laughs> a weird relationship. So it was, it was kind of nice when I stopped playing to then pick up my love of Spurs again. Which right now must be reaching a peak because we're not going to stop at the modern Spurs for very long. But the brand of football that you're seeing, the emergence of some, if not local boys, some English yeah. fellas in, yeah. in the team again, the type of manager that you've got, a rebuilding of a stadium, a gradual progress that takes you to Champions League and comfortably beating the holders but at Wembley right now this isn't the worst time to be a Spurs lover no but the nature of a Spurs fan lover is you're always looking for the 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 worst and uh, the Real Madrid game was a classic listening to the commentary we were 3-0 up with 25-30 minutes to go and the commentary Steve McManaman was on co-coms and I think Ian Dark Ian Dark yeah 
And it was all over with 30 minutes to go. It was like the, the, the next 20 minutes was just talking about this fantastic victory for Spurs. And you know as well as I do that the Real Madrid, if any team, have got it in them to, to get... It could have happened. It could have happened. So you, what, you're sitting chewing your, oh, your nails? Oh, God, sir. It was just, just your typical Spurs fan. I'm sitting there thinking... I nearly turned the sound down because I was getting wound up about it. And then when they scored, then they had another little spell about yeah. five minutes after where they yeah. could, have got, could have got the second. And I was thinking, this is... And but thankfully, so Spurs it, held on. Every silver lining has a cloud, is what you're saying. Yes, that's just the nature of a Spurs fan. I always thought Man City supporters used to be the same. Oh well, yeah, but yeah, they're not now. They've they've earned they've it. They've, they've earned it yeah. a little bit. They've had their years. So it's nice to be supporting a club. Oh, I believe have done things in their own way, in the right way. And so let me give you a proposition because everybody talks about. Oh, I don't know Harry Kane and Pochettino and. They might even mention Deli Alley, White Art Lane's being rebuilt. If you've got any common sense, you know that Levy's a guy who's done things pretty remarkably in terms yeah. of the capacity of the crowd and therefore the revenue generation. So, very few people outside the game talk about the training ground. And what yeah. we know from every foreign journalist or player that's ever visited there, from the players I know who work there, even from Daniel Levy's partner, who's macrobiotic and he grows her vegetables at the training ground. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's a mark of class, I think. Just like when I used to be. I was going to say, Terry. I was going to say, Terry. <laughs> let me take you back to, what, 78, 79. Try and paint a picture. Where did Spurs train when you broke through? Well, they age had 16? one of the best training grounds in the country. Uh-huh. Even at that, that time. It's only three pitches. There was no gymnasium. They had one main pitch, which had a little stand. It was at Cheson, a place called Cheson. You played at against other youth teams in their training grounds and nothing compared to, to Chesham. But it was literally three pitches, one nice pitch and a pavilion, a, what you would say, a cricket pavilion with yeah. small change rooms in. So, so it was, but it was one of the better ones. Where then was this mythical indoor sort of hall where that was there were White markings on the at White Hart yeah, Lane? Yeah, at White Hart Lane. So we trained, the routine would be Monday to Thursday at Chesham. Um, which is probably about 10 or 12 miles from White Hart Lane. So that was the training facility. And then on Friday morning, everybody was based at White Hart Lane. And there were two concrete gyms, concrete flooring, um, with a five-side pitch marked out, brick wall. Ceilings were, were really high, so you could whack the ball. It was no, you, you didn't have to go. It wasn't one of those where no overhead height, which yeah. sometimes was the rule in the games, but yeah. it, it, it was, was full-on. Um, and everybody, so you'd have the youth team, which, looking back now, the numbers-wise, before my year where i become an apprentice, they had three apprentices. So my last year at school, I became the unofficial fourth apprentice. We used to go to school holidays, um, help out with the jobs. And that particular year, because there was only three apprentices, we, us four or five other schoolboys in our last year at school, were a godsend to them because it meant they got the gym clean quicker, the, the kit picked up quicker, were all the jobs there. Boots, boots, showers, yep, everything. So terraces, sweeping the terraces. No, uh, no, no, no. It wasn't. Okay. It wasn't that. No, we didn't have to do that. We had to do it when it was snowing and stuff. Clear the snow from the terraces, clear the snow from the pitch and stuff like that. But not in general. There was a ground staff that did that. So it was a godsend for them to have the schoolboys in the school holidays to go in and, and train. So I, the last year of my schooling, I kind of got used to that and I wasn't, I, I hardly went to school. So I become an unpaid, unofficial fourth apprentice. Um, so the numbers, that goes to show you, in my group, the official year I signed apprentice, 
there was probably seven or eight, which was a big group compared to the, the three that was the year before. So we didn't have, like nowadays, I'm sure there's probably 10, 12, 15 at first year, whatever they're called now, scholars, academy scholars, players. Yeah. And that goes till well, under, seven, under 16, under 17, under 18. We had a group of 11 mm-hmm. that covered the whole, the whole spectrum. The whole spectrum. So it was not a problem us being there on a Friday morning. The reserves were playing on a Saturday as well. The youth team, two youth teams. There was the under-16, under-18, but only the full-time apprentices would be at Wire Hart Lane on a Friday morning. And the reserves. So you had to... Everyone trained at Wire Hart Lane in, in these two gyms. Plus the first team? Yes, first team. Yeah. Um, every single player. You had to wait to see which gym you were going to be in, whether you are going to be trained with the big boys or the, the reserves. Come youth team, stroke youth team in the lower ball court. They were called ball courts. Ball courts, yeah. And upstairs had a little viewing gallery um, where when you train there on a Tuesday and Thursday night as a schoolboy, the parents could sit and watch. So it, it was tradition, it was a routine, and it went back years. I mean, as a young player at Spurs, you would train at Chesney in the morning, pick up all the kit, do all the jobs transport it all the way back to White Hart Lane and then you would have another session in the afternoon. My, uh, my stage of that, my career there was Peter Shreves was the youth team coach, so the afternoon in the gym with Shreves, he based on ball skills and, and stuff like that. But the Friday morning was the big coming together of everybody. Well, you know what I'm fishing for <laughs> first, which is these mythical markings on the wall that you're going to tell me which great players used them what they were for, what they looked like, what, what the drills were that were demanded of you with, in this ball court with the concrete floor and the brick walls. When you looked across to the other wall, what could you see and what was that there for? Well, we, we had to... Everything was about ball skills. There was a certain ball you used in the gym because um, it was going to be used constantly on concrete. And there was always... Everything was based around chipping, driving the ball, certain height, certain weight on the pass... And there was, on the wall, you've got a circle, mm-hmm. a line above the circle, and this goes all the way around the gym. So every six metres, whatever, there'd be a circle. There'd be a line above it, a line below it. There'd be a higher line. At, at starting be at waist height, shoulder yes, height? Yes, waist height, waist shoulder height, height and above the line, the highest line was probably about eight foot. Okay. So that would be right. You've got to chip it over the top or on the white line at the top, off the wall, back onto your chest without hitting the floor, keep it up two or three times and then a volley into the lower circle, stuff like that. So, so you're aiming that, it. you're, it's keep it up, chest it when it comes back off the concrete wall, yeah. which might be how far away? We would be 15 yards away, 20 it, yards away. So then... But and when you'd you, be in the middle of the gym, so you've got another 20, someone else behind you doing it the other way. All right. And you'd stagger yourself. And your volleys must go onto the white line or into the circle or what? Into the circle. Right. So you chip above the white line. You can go as high as you want. So obviously the higher you go, the more chance you've got of it reaching you on a return so you can get it on your chest control two or three times, keeping the ball up, and then look to to volley it, whatever target was given. So that'd be the circle, it'd be the square, it'd be the set, the lower white line. Um, And that would continue. That, that That probably wouldn't be the end of the exercise. So it would be then, as it comes back to you, one touch to control, and then drive it into the, the other target, the square, without hitting the floor. So there was, there was stuff like that. And there were challenges, that, traditional challenges, that had been going on over the years. Our schoolboy coach was Ron Henry, 
who was in the, the famous double team. He was a fearsome character, Ron. He was another again. Hero of your nothing. dad and, and hero, hero of my dad, yeah. And, and by, by you know, <clears> being passed down of yours until you, until you meet him. And, and fright, he frightened their life out of me. I remember I, I went to Spurs, I went to a few clubs, I was invited to go and train with a few clubs. And my first training session at Spurs, I was actually injured. I had what they call Oscus Lattus, which is a, believe it or not, something to do with a, a growing disorder. They're seen as a, I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to buy No, I, it was kind of strange Listen, that I got all it. All my life in Spain, I've worked with Messi. And, it, and, and it, you and Messi are about <laughs> identical height, so you, you know, it'll do for me. The resemblance ends there. And um, he, it was to do with the growing of the knee and the shin bone and stuff like that, and overplaying. So, yeah, like most boys my age, I was... Oh, I don't think I was overplaying. But it, it could be nowadays, I played for a Saturday team, a Sunday team, trained at Tottenham Tuesday and Thursday, played from a school, played from a district, played for representative teams in the leagues that I played in on Saturday and Sunday morning, Waltham Forest, played for Essex, played for London, played for England schoolboys, all between the age of 13 and 15. So you were playing and training every day. So when I went to Spurs, they asked me to go, and I said, I've got this, we've been to see an osteopath because I wasn't tied to a club, and I had this, which was quite common at the time. So when I, they said, come down and have treatment, they wanted me to go, and they wanted to get to know me and stuff. So the first time I walked in, Ron Emery was there, and I went in the change room, and I said, he said, who are you? <laughs> it was no, there was no... I've been courted by a scout, a bloke no. called Dickie Walker, who was like a legendary chief scout at Spurs. He, he literally... He was chief scout, he was the only scout, and he did everything. First team players, reserves, he found everybody that went, went to Spurs. So he was, a, he was a close pal of Eddie Bailey and Bill Nicholson, and everything went through Dickie Walker. And Dickie, I said, oh, Dickie Walker sent me down. I don't care, what were you doing here? What, so what are you doing? Where's your kit? I said, I've come down for treatment. You make me laugh, you lot. You've, you're not even training. You First time you've come down here and you're right in about walking you. and coming for treatment. He had no idea. He didn't care. It was, and I kind of get what he was thinking. He's probably got twenty kids to train that particular night. Schoolboys. But on the day one you were, turns up, on the day what you're feeling understanding, or you, or you. Oh no, no, I was scared. Yeah, yeah I was like, oh no, I'll try to explain. My dad had dropped me off. My dad wasn't in the change room at the time. I'll try to explain, and and then thankfully Dickie Walker came in and said to Ron, no, no, this is I told the boy I told you about. And we can look after him. He's you know, we can have a look at him in the next few weeks. But so it was. We had this Ron Henry who'd done all these skills um, probably 20 years before. And these traditions are still the same markings are still on the wall. And he would tell us this record and that record. And one the, the name that, that had seemed to have every record was Dave Mackay. Dave Mackay, I was hoping you would say Every that. single record Dave Mackay had. Now, my, my image of Dave Mackay was this tough tackling, mm. no-nonsense leader-type player that was loved, revered at Spurs and at Derby County and... And as I got older, I did see him on, on television, mainly for Derby County, not so much for Spurs, and, and, and recognising that this wonderfully talented leader-type personality, then to find out that he was the, you know, Since the legend. skilled. And, exactly, in touch and, and technique and stuff like that. So Dave Mackay was always the target. So we would be given these challenges that if Dave Mackay could do it, you could do it. Ron Henry could do stuff that we couldn't do. And Still at, at that age, age, fifteen and sixteen. Yes, um, he would do everything perfect and so easy. So he would demonstrate 
this is what I want you to do, we need to do it. When you watch some kids, I mean, I don't want to name names, but you watch some kids who break through in the Premier League now, do you think if you took them back to that gym, they could do those skills? I'm asking because I see a lot of runners and jumpers and Yeah, we we had a lot of players at the time that I came through that were similar in terms of, if you looked at the, the chipping technique of someone like Glenn Hoddle, and then it was Mickey Hazard, and it was Ian Crook, three players that were really skillful, that were different, Glenn was obviously, and Mickey and Ian Crook would agree, was was clearly the best. But the, the way they chipped the ball, the technique they used, it was it was so similar. And we were all we were all capable of driving the ball waist height to a player 20 yards away. We were all capable of chipping it into someone's chest 20 yards away. You're all capable of controlling it on your chest and your first touch. And you, you see that the, the way that Glenn Hoddle controlled the chest control would be similar to other players that came through Spurs at that, at that time. So... I mean, I loved it. It was dreamland, didn't you? Anybody listening to this who loves football would be thinking that is dreamland because not only you're at the club you love, but, you know, you're talking about doing skills that are a test, they're fun, you're setting yourself against the guy who's next to you, who's to your right, who's behind you, and it's that competitive urge that when you're a kid, you try and kick the ball off a lamppost or a tree or put it it through somebody's window and pretend it was a mistake. And you're doing that for a living. And we did it... So we would train in the morning at Cheson. So we'd get to our lane first, load all the kit up on the minibus. We had three or four players each who were responsible for, for getting their kit ready, cleaning their boots, rolling their kit up in a towel. Who were yours? I was really lucky. Go on. Well, I signed officially Apprentice in the summer of 79. So July, August. Aged 16. Or 15, I 16. 16, yeah. And I was professional by December. Um, I played in the first team in three months. So I didn't have a long apprenticeship. But I did the jobs for another two years unofficially. Voluntary. Or was it expected just to keep yeah, your feet yeah, in the ground? I wouldn't have dared to have yeah. not done them. So instead of 16 quid a week, I was getting 80 quid a week. But still polishing boots and oh, yeah, washing yeah. strips. Yeah, so you'd get to Wire Lane early in the morning, fight over the kit, literally, because there was ankle socks and long socks and the players had preferences, and if you didn't get the right socks, then you got a bollock and you got to the other end. You'd go forward to taking the ankle socks out of someone else's and putting them in... So, so it, it was good fun. So that was probably about eight o'clock up our state. Then we go to Cheshunt on the minibus, train there, do all the same jobs afterwards, collect all the stuff up, back on the minibus, back to White Hart Lane, bit of lunch in a cafe around the corner. To we'll come to White Hart Lane, yeah. And we had an allowance. Probably I think it was 80, I think it was eighty pence a day allowance for your dinner, and it it coped. It, did, it right, did the job. Actually, yeah, yeah. Um, ham egg and chips, stuff like that. Train in the gym. Then we'd have other jobs to do, and then we'd, you'd find us back in the back gym. There. So this is probably five o'clock where we'd finished. You're in your, your civvies in your because you've changed, showered, done mm. your jobs, and then back up there. And then and some of the older pros. So my above my age group was people like Mark Falco, mm-hmm. um, Gary Brook. Um, they would be waiting, hanging around for us to go back in the gym. Then we would literally get thrown out, and all the time we were doing these. We wasn't just messing around. Doing it the skills. Doing the skills. It was hitting the crossbar, hitting the white line, chest control, and it was just a, a question of all the time being driven on by wanting to achieve what others had achieved and not be embarrassed because there was an element of fear. If Ron Henry told you to do this particular skill, he would look over you and watch. And the pressure 
at 14 and 15 and 16 or whatever if you couldn't do it. Hugely embarrassing, was, huh? was, Yeah. And then when you train him with the pros, they would pair you up so you wouldn't pick your own pairs and then suddenly you find yourself chipping a ball to Glenn Hoddle and mm-hmm. he doesn't want a chip that doesn't go on his chest. So you've got to be... Ball's got to come right there. It's got to be where he wants it, yeah. Um, not because he was the type of bloke that would give you a bollocking if he didn't, but you just didn't want to be If you're competitive, you, you make if sure you your did, level's you, right. If you didn't get the first one right, the pressure's on the second one, and then perhaps if you did three or four that weren't as Glenn wanted, or Ozzy Ardelis or Steve Perman, if it wasn't wanted, then they might... You'd, mo- you'd be moved on at very least. Yeah. They'd let you know. <laughs> Body language, they wouldn't come across and random rave in your face, but it, it was it was it was a lovely environment to, to All be right. brought up. You've set this up beautifully, <clears throat> old storyteller you. So we're talking about technique, we're talking about skill, yeah. we're talking about sort of a sort of round table, a King Arthur's table of technique and it was it was a lovely environment. <laughs> so now tell me about the Friday kick up. Well that, that it was it was lethal. It was but you got this, this so from you would lovely do, environment to lethal. Yes, and then the the program would be twenty minutes probably of these chipping, different techniques, bit of a that would be like a warm up and then a game, which is probably a nine aside. It's probably the size of the ball court upstairs was probably a quarter of a football pitch. Right. If concrete think, floor. Concrete still. floor, brick wall. Ball so the ball never goes out of play, there's no fouls. So you can be smashed up against the brick wall. The last place you wanted to be was trapped in the corner with the ball in there. and people. you kicking. Yes. And you had some competitive guys in there, really competitive. And it was important to win the games. It was important not to miss chances that came your way. By and large, it would be two-touch, one-touch finish. And people would want to take the piss as well. So if you was one of the skillful players, I'm not going to name names because it's easy to identify who they were at the time at Spurs. I already spoke about some of them. Um, but in every team, there's skillful players and there's a balance of players that know how to win a game of football. And that counted on a Friday morning. It's exactly the same. So you'd have the ones that want to take the mick. Ozzy, Glenn, loved the nutmegs. Um, there was other players, Alfie Conn, Neil McNabb. I remember Mickey Hazard, of course, he loved the nutmegs. That was all that mattered all to football. them. Ball players. That's all that mattered. Then you'd have your other players that were determined to win. Firm players. Firm senior players that didn't want the piss taken at them. And there was no nutmegging this player or that player and no one would try and nutmeg Terry Naylor or Steve Perriman or John Pratt. But, they, you know, the ones that wanted to take liberties tried to. Might have a go every now and again and <clears throat> oh, try Oh, yeah. And count them. I was never a big fan <laughs> of nutmegging people. I got nutmegs. I didn't care. I threw myself in and committed, went, went on my arse and slid in and got nutmegged. And it, it never bothered me. And it never bothered me nutmegging others. But for some players, and to this day, people still some it's players a trophy, it's a love, love a nutmeg. Yeah, and in in that environment where one was no shin pads for twenty minutes, no stoppages because the ball never goes out of play. It was all hell would break. So I, I got hit probably most Fridays. Got a right hander, a punch. Yes, on a, on a Friday afternoon. Not always um, from the same person. <clears throat> oh no, 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 this was endless, and I, I deserved it. I mean, I was. And I know that you're kind of like a football Boutros, Boutros Galley, a, you know, a peacemaker and a bringer of love and joy, but I you might occasionally have hooked back, did you? Yeah, did, I, did, I fully did admit you? I had small man syndrome right throughout my playing no, career. <laughs> because it was, there were issues. I was fortunate. Tottenham was one of the places where I, they had encouraged me to fill out, because when I made my debut, I was 17 years, You were really slender, weren't you? I was nine stone. Yeah. 
and yeah. the same height, five foot four. So it, I was encouraged then to fill out, but they never really made it clear to me that if I didn't, I wouldn't make it. It was for my benefit. Okay. So there was never a concern that they thought I would be too small to make it as a player. or So it was always encouragement. So Sensational. I did that, and, and it was ridiculous. The diet was drink Guinness. I was 16. It was eat steak. We probably couldn't afford steak too often, if I'm being honest. And my 16 quid a week wasn't going to get too many steaks. So it was kind of left to our own devices. My dad built me some weights that I could use at home and chest expander. I had a sandbag that I used to do leg raises on, lay on the floor and do for my quads, which my quads eventually become huge, so that helped. But my dad had two wheels from a lorry and he had an iron bar welded to the two wheels. <laughs> so you imagine big lorry wheels without the tyres on. Flipping and a big pole, a big iron bar in the middle, a round bar. Yeah, yeah. That was in my bedroom. So I would come home and Dad would say, have you done your squats and done your sandbags with your leg raises and stuff like that? So there, there was a gym at Spurs, but it, I, I've seen pictures of 30 years before that, the same gym, same the same equipment. It wasn't a big issue at Tottenham that... And most clubs. Because it was ball work first? or, or, or Yeah, probably, and probably people didn't realise they expected of every player that they would be strong enough. And if he wasn't strong enough, it was your own responsibility to be strong enough. Okay. If he wasn't strong enough, then you weren't going to be any good to anybody. So it was just get on with it yourself, really. Were you learning Walthamstow in the end? Yeah. So I know the bus driver from the sort of... Uh, White Hartley and Walthamstow route and cauliflower ears, black oh, eyes, no, busted it, nose on the yeah, way Yeah, we home. had this uh, sand... When we, we finished in the gym on a Friday, one of the jobs was to sweep the gym. Mm. And because it was, it was impossible, because you, you'd sweep it, the dust would go up and the end come straight back on the floor. So they, they gave us sand, big bags of sand, to pour out in the gym. And you each went up and down this length of this ball court with a brushing technique, moving it six inches at a time, so it would trap the dust and you then collected the sand back up at the end. I'm thinking, as I'm talking about now, i what, on what planet is I that? I Keith Burton shows up in the balcony having a regular. Yeah, it was every Friday we did Get that. on, Lance. So I used to get this black stuff in your mouth and mm. your nose and mm. stuff like that. And so having got a smack in the mouth from one of the senior players or any, it could have been someone my own age, if you just rattled someone and you got an elbow in the face or a right, literally, you know, right-hander going home on the bus afterwards with a black eye and a fat lip and a Black stuff coming out my nose, <laughs> and then playing on, on Saturday morning. Well, was, I was going to uh, say, luckily this this was you know you know several days before the big game. But no, I mean, and to finish on a Friday, so we had the, the warm up with the chip, the chipping technique. We then had the kick up, and then sprints on the cinder around the bar lane pitch. Yeah. So everyone would then finish with the sprints, and that was competitive again. And being quick, that was one of my. I can stand out here mm-hmm. now. I might not be the best at chipping and stuff. but And the sprints would be 20 yards max. And you'd probably do another 10, 15 minutes to sharpen up. And I always thought then, that's how everybody was going to be on a Friday morning. Mm. It was perfect. You did the chipping, the technique, the skills. You did the kick up. And then you finished with the sprints. And you felt alive on a Friday afternoon. Sharp, ready to go on Saturday. Terry Butcher once told us <coughs> in this series... Great story about the gravel, red gravel pitch opposite Ibrox where Graham Sooners was the manager and it was England, Scotland. Yeah. And he said it just yeah. went off. He said there was no whole bars. Yeah. His description was a little bit like yours, you know, when you said that the thing was lethal. And we both know that if that was tried at any club today, you know, 
nobody would buy into it. It'd be this, you know, it'd be on the Sunday papers back page. Yeah. Immediately, yeah. youngsters would cry off. People wouldn't go to that club. Literally, they would. And, and, and it's the other kids you took from the older players. There yeah. was at the time, and even now, they weren't wrong. They stood you in good stead. Mm. But if you gave the ball away in a practice session, and someone, you know, would I mean Terry Nadas made me cry in every my mm. first reserve game mm. because I was 15 years old playing with Terry Nadas. He's one of my players that I was watching. And he, I gave the ball away on the halfway line because I was trying to be clever. And he ripped into me and I had a lump in my throat. My eyes were teared up, mm. 15 years old. Natural. And spent the next 20 minutes not probably being out to see the ball properly and trying to... Sh- I'm not upset. Yes, yes, I am. And it but you was, wouldn't want I, to do no, it again. I gave the ball away for the rest of my career on the halfway line when I was trying to be too clever. And I heard, could hear Terry Naylor effing and blinding at me. And that would be on a daily basis. So uh, I, I so don't not... think it's wrong... I didn't think it was wrong then. It was uncomfortable. No one liked to have it done to them. And I I certainly don't think it would be wrong now. It might make you young players feel uncomfortable. But it couldn't happen, could it? I mean, I'm I'm not asking it to turn the clock back. Because clearly there are some things about... Just one example, you know. Somebody goes in hard, you know, there's no fouls. The next game is is Arsenal. It's 24 hours away. Somebody's, you know, leg gets broken. Or, Or their ankle gets turned and it's because there was a Friday kick up. In the modern game, nobody, nobody would accept that. No, they wouldn't. No, it's no, more question than yeah. statement. Joe, I can't. Re- I can't recollect that actually happening in the end, where someone got injured on the Friday kick-up and I missed the game on the, the Saturday. It, it just it was bizarre. That and your, didn't happen. Your parting statement in this. I mean, that... you talking about the first team could be having a big game the next day, and yeah. someone's levering into Glen Oddo and Ozzy Ardiles on a Friday morning. Could Ozzy or Glenn handle it? Glenn could handle it with the skill, and Ozzy could look after himself physically as well. He, he knew self-preservation, Ozzy. He's a hell of a man, isn't he? Yeah. yeah he Let's was... talk about those exotic birds, because when we were chatting, just privately setting this up, one of the things that you liked was, that apart from playing with your heroes that you've been watching, or been trained by a hero of your dad, and a yeah. double winner, you know, it was a very local side, and um, London was a really different city then. A bit more wide, a, you know, a bit less homogenised and corporate, and yeah, no, definitely. you had to know your way around. But also, it kind of everybody knew each other. And you said that even when Ricky Hazard came down from, you know, Sunderland, it was like, wow, who's this yeah. strange creature? Yeah, and it must have been tough for him as for well. For him, but then then two Argentinians turn up. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it was a rarity to have a Welsh player or a Scottish <laughs> player or a player from Sunderland like Ricky Hazard coming down and spending time at a club and. And then was on these two aliens. These are really Welsh. These are very Welsh, these two. South America that we'd only seen in late at night when you were fortunate enough to watch watch the World Cup that summer. And then they turn up with a ticker tape welcome. And it was interesting, actually, because they'd not long been relegated before that. And there was a big turnaround at the club, and Keith Birkinshaw became the manager. And Keith really did change clubs. And people didn't probably give him credit at that time because it took a while for everything to materialise and the end, the end results and one of those was the youth team the, the, the school boys hence the reason the year before me there was only three apprentices in my year there was eight and that got up to scratch again um, Keith would be on the team the team bus the, the coach on a Sunday morning travelling with us as 14 and 15 year olds going off to play at Colchester or 
whatever, whatever, whatever club we were playing with. It was a long journeys were Colchester, that's why I picked them out. South End, um, we would play so Arsenal, the Southern West Counties Ham, League, or Southern whatever, Counties right? League. Yeah, Keith yeah. would be on the bus with his wife mm-hmm. on a Sunday morning after the first thing game on a Saturday. He got to know the parents, he got to know all of us and took a real interest. So that was the first sort of thing he did. And then, of course, the, the club got back in the top division and then Keith had the vision that no one else had at the time. I'm sure Ozzy and Ricky, Ozzy in particular, was offered to other clubs. Um, but Keith was the one that had the guts to go ahead with it. And then, of course, the, the ridiculous story that Ozzy said, would you be interested in my mate? And that was Ricky. It's as simple as that, Simple as it? that, yeah. But Harry Haslam, the ex-Sheffield United manager, had contacts in... Because Alex Sabia had joined, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, there was that sort of connection somewhere and the connection between Harry Haslam and Keith, maybe one or two other managers that didn't fancy the idea of Ozzy Ardilis, South American, coming in and playing in, in the English League. Um, but Keith had that. It was something he suddenly thought straight away. He had, I was with him recently and he admitted straight away he knew Ozzy as the player yeah. um, and thought it was a great idea. And then when Ozzy said, oh, but it was just literally as easy as that. Would you be interested in my mate? I've got this fellow who yeah. I know and he was in the plays. World Cup. And, and the, the funny thing was Ricky is his main impact in that World Cup was doing someone, kicking someone. And he socks down, long beard, long hair. For all intents and purposes, a, a typical... Hatchet man midfielder. You wouldn't mess with him. No, and then Ricky turns up and didn't want to make a tackle for six months. It was the only tackle in his entire career that he'd ever done like that. And everybody thought we've signed Ricky to protect Ozzy. Um, that's you know great. Ozzy's the skillful one. He's the little fella. Ricky's the big, strong fella that's going to look after him. And it, it probably was the other way around. Uh, but at the, at the image everybody had of Ricky, it wasn't too much footage other than this tackle. But he was a strong guy, and once he realised that he had to be physical and be stronger, but clearly his strength, Ricky, was his, his skill. But I, I, I spoke to Ozzy at length over what it was like for them when they turned up, and they didn't have much knowledge of Tottenham Hotspur, they knew it was in London, didn't have much knowledge of other teams in the division, no knowledge, of course, of any of the players at Tottenham Hotspur, no mm. knowledge of the area, so they were, uh, Ozzy said they went to training, someone drove them two or three days in, to Chesant, and then they got cars delivered. They had local sponsored cars. Jags, Mercs. Uh, no, it was, one was an Austin Allegro and one was an Austin Princess. I've seen the pictures of it, it looks great. <laughs> and they're being presented with these cars, and then everyone left, and Ozzy and Mickey had no idea whether to go left or right outside the train room, back to where they lived. It, it's, it was just literally no, there was no care whatsoever. Uh, yeah, but they were signed. Now get on with it. Find your own way home and find. Do you think they did drive around like North London? They must have done. Yeah, they must have. Done. Um, and so there was Dun, no. Exactly. Just can't imagine it. But it was great for us. It was my last year at the school year, which I'd never went to school in, apart from to play games for the uh, school. That was an arrangement we had that I would go and play school football matches and spend the rest of the time. Out, all right. Yeah, and yeah, it was a bad decision, but it's worked out in hindsight and so I was there on a regular basis when they turned up and it was just there was a little bit of resentment I think from the other players just got promoted and then you got two foreigners coming in South Americans coming in and they, they, they had all the publicity and clearly they, they were going to get the publicity and then the interest from everywhere on Tottenham Hotspur because it was in Ricky sort of uh, it didn't take long before they the players realised how good they were and fantastic lovely. fellas aren't yeah. they so it took probably a week but their English but there was, wouldn't have been oh it was non-existent yeah but 
Aussie learned to swear pretty quickly. <laughs> Swears too much now. I, I mean, no, I just he, he, I can't <laughs> believe we haven't rehearsed this because I was the first time I ever met him. We were down in somewhere in southwest London, one of these cricket green village thingies where the pub sits in the corner, and he was on his way to West Ham to do something or other. And I was having lunch. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it might even have been Mark Bolton. And as he turns up to the table, it's about lunchtime, and he has a drink and. Um, his language is that I thought I found my brother because <laughs> everybody tells me that I, my, my language is atrocious <laughs> like, I've just been outsworn by Aussie well, you, you look at we had these two Argentinians that both smoking in the changing room before games at half time on the team bus which was driving players mad they had the shortest shorts that you could possibly imagine and then they tied their boots up around their ankles so as young players, we're all looking and thinking, should I start smoking? <laughs> um, I'm going to roll my shorts up. I'll start with that. And I, I love the way Aussie ties his... If you look at the original Is pictures when Aussie came Leases in. just keep coming up above? Yeah, up the socks. So they, instead of we were underneath the boot or then become the trend just to tie, why are we going underneath the boot? I don't know why we ever did that, wrapping it round about five times. Not to Aussie and Ricky tying it up round their ankle and up their sock. Tying a bow even halfway up their shin. It looked good though. It did. did. You had the Mario (laughs) Kempesh and the Aussie Ardelis and the the other South Americans with the ankle laces tied up. It it looked it looked apart. And useless. It was utterly useless in terms of keeping your boot on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And Aussie's first word would have been nuts. Because he liked a nutmeg, didn't he? Oh yeah, yeah. He was a he was a genius, he was. was, Some of the things he was telling me one of them still I'm not sure is possible that when he was taking a defender on, and it, I think it, it must be, I can't fathom it out, I couldn't work it out, he gave me advice that when he was running at a defender and the defender was facing him and backing off, he would look for a particular split second where a certain foot would be planted as that player was running back to then knock the ball past him. Can't do it. Because the balance, he yeah. means it, once he's gone, the guy's balance is such that yeah, he's got so an if extra he advantage. His, exactly. Yeah. And Aussie tried to advise me, I'm still not sure that's possible. Please, I mean, Because <laughs> when you look, you, you've got the ball at your feet, you're looking at the defender, you're probably looking at the upper half of his body. But some of us have to look, and others, I'm not giving yeah. a, a, a veritas automatically to Aussie, but you and I both know that in life as well, he's a very, very intelligent man. Extreme. And he was a lawyer, and his dad yeah. was furious that he, Grandmaster stupid football, chess. you flipping idiot, yeah. and, you know, never mind your World Cup, your Grandmaster at Chess. A bright man. Some people, you know, you've spent your latter life commentating on Isco and Iniesta and Xavi and Messi, and yeah. you kind of know that some people are oh, different. Just sense yeah. it. Yeah, I tried it. I tried it in training, but I couldn't get the, my head down looking at the ball and the players' feet. My, my head was always and coordinating, looking the, at the upper the shove of the ball yeah. and moving. Yeah, at the, the upper part of the body and knowing. When that player stepped back onto his left foot as he was manoeuvring backwards, then I could go on the right because his left foot. It was, it was that sort of theory behind what he was telling us. But it, it was it's extremely hard, hard to do. And, but I trust Ozzy could do it because you see, used to see him on a regular basis. He, the player knock it past players, and the arm used to come out in their face, and that was it. He was gone, and no stopping him. He was tough as well. He was oh, he was very yeah, street smart. Similar to me, he was. Ozzy's probably a couple of inches taller than me, so he's but probably to, five but, six. But toothpick thin as well. Yes, no, he wasn't then. as big as me. He's really slender, and he knew how to look after himself. And he had to because at that stage, English football 
you they were inclined that it, it was possible to kick players. Let's go on one of his nights. Let's go one of his nights. Where were you in, I suppose it was January 1980? Yes, it was, yeah. January 1980, FA Cup, third round replay. Old Trafford, 53,762 spectators. Do we have to describe what a replay is? <laughs> younger listeners. Yeah, so, <laughs> all right. Probably. And we used to have more Th- than does one. Does this mean you scored in the 1-1 draw? Was that 1-1 no, draw? No, it was 1-1 on the Saturday and this At would White have been Art midweek. Lane. So three okay. days later. We didn't have to wait. Ten days. Had you played in the first long. game? Yep. My debut was 29th of December against Stoke. Stoke? And a, then, a calm affair. Yep. No uh, kicking or fighting no, or scratching Rip or pulling. Yeah. Mike Doyle. I got a reputation in from day one. Mm. And then a part of that was I wanted to play in the, the next game. And I thought if I'd been picked to play in this one, there was one or two injury issues. But by and large, the team weren't scoring. So I was given the go-ahead to, to have a crack. And I knew we had Manchester United the week later at Wild Lane in the FA Cup. So that was my first target. Played well against Stoke. We won one nil. Then selected for the next game, which was Manchester United at Wild Hart Lane. It was an interesting experience because it was there was a little bit of fear in the game before the game. We had the fences up mm. at Wild Lane at that time. It's fifty odd thousand. Mm. Crowd trouble was pretty bad. I'm it- seventeen and a week. It was the norm, and when we talk about crowd mm. trouble, we are talking about... This was more than the norm. It punches was, and yeah. fights and bottles and bricks, and it was the Terraces full old... Getting in amongst each other and yeah. taking an end and taking a side and all that stuff, you know. Where Anybody was, who's grown up with the Premier League only just has literally no idea what we're talking about. No, and we had, the fences were to stop play, people getting on the pitch because there was a period where it was all happening on the pitch as well, yeah. and then the fences came down. And, and, and this it was, was North versus South, this was Manchester United Spurs. Yes. And it, yeah, no, neither of us and is I'm a week, it up. a week after my 17th birthday, five yeah. months since leaving the school, and the warm-up before the game, I'm knocking a ball around the steeper, and come across, and I think he knew, and he said, are you OK? And I was like looking at like the damage that was going on a few yards away from me behind the... Because people are horrible. battering each other yeah. pre-game. yeah. So that it was it was a big event, of course, and it, it, but mm. it wasn't. If I'm being honest, the eighties when I weren't a great time. The spectacle of playing football there was there was periods where it wasn't on television. There was periods where we had the fences and of really? course we had two, two biggest two, yeah disasters. So disasters it, it wasn't imagine. a glamorous period for, for English football. But playing at Man United and Spurs is a glamorous affair. And but in that at that stage, I imagine as a footballer, in your case, you just You'd seen it enough to accept it, and okay with Steve Perriman's help, you just you just get on with it, no? Yeah, but it was hard. It, it, it takes a while. To, it took a while to get. I was I was a kid, you know. And you, you're looking around, and you're seeing the bad trouble, bad violence. That's, the, that's um, interesting. You just Twenty first, minutes before kickoff, you're the first pro I've heard. You go out, you've got springing your step. That. You're doing this warm up, no team warm up. You go out and flick a ball about, and just get used to the atmosphere. And of course, six months before, I'm standing in the same place where the the crowd are singing your name and it's all kicking off and it, it was volatile. It was Potentially you had mates in there that day? Or? Yeah, family, mates, yeah, in the same places where I used to stand, cousins, uncles and stuff. Mm. And it's it, it, it was just like this is not a reserve game with 1,500 people mm. in or a youth team game at Chesant. This is 50-odd thousand. And at the, in that particular day, they were trying to tear each other apart. So it was... But once I got over that pretty quick, Steve Perriman was captain and... Legend, he come over and sort of calmed you, concentrate. I think it was more of a get a head straight. Yeah, concentrate on the game. 
and we drew. So three days later, we've got the replay at Old Trafford and picked to play again. It was the dynamic duo of me and Jerry Armstrong up front. They're, they're, okay, we'll come, we'll come to Jerry in a minute. Yeah. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. United in them days were Gary Bailey, Martin Buck, and Stuart Houston, Jimmy Nickel, Gordon McQueen, Stevie Copel, Mickey Thomas, Ray Wilkins, Sammy McElroy, Joe Jordan and Lou McCary. Yeah. You know, a decent oh, 11 there. Yeah. A decent 11 there. And the side that Spurs line up is Alexic, Hutton, Don McAllister, Paul Miller, Steve Perriman, Osvaldo Ardiles, Glenn Hoddle, Ricky Villa, Terry Yorath, yeah. Jerry Armstrong and Terry Gibson. And what happens? you got to remember there's only one sub mm. per team then. Um, Who's John Pratt? Yeah, and the, you would usually use them as an impact or emergency, of course, if injury emergency. So you were reluctant, managers were, were reluctant to use the subs, and they said you were 1 0 down with 10 minutes to go, and that's where we, we had the players that become known as super subs. And what happened in this particular game was they are playing at Old Trafford, the Stretford in 60, 60 odd thousand, it probably was. Um, midweek, it was on sports night, it, no live, so the highlights were going to be on later on television. And, and the ball goes into the box and Joe Jordan goes up for a header with Melio Alexic. Cleans him out. I mean, and you, what you've got to remember is we, as players, we only see, yep, see an aerial, aerial collision. It didn't look any different. To, when you see the replay, you see exactly what happens. It's a clear elbow. It was even by those standards when centre-forwards were expected to go and challenge goalkeepers in that manner it was a it was an awful awful collision elbow was out straight into Amelia's jaws he's mid-air fractured his jaw and cheekbone and uh, it was all, all all over the place in the eye socket what we didn't realise though there was because he got knocked out in the air when he landed his knees uh, spun round yeah, okay. and he'd done his cruciate mm-hmm. uh, knee ligament so the initial response was to a player that was Severely unconscious, and his face was a, a mess. But you're looking at you're you're not thinking who's going to go and go. Are we going to win this game? You've got a teammate who's in a bad way, um, and then it was. What do we do now? On a, um, eight, there was ages to go. There was a long time to go in that game as well. Yeah, it's, I'd say because we were into extra time as well. Twenty something minutes. Uh, yeah. The... So we're thinking, no plan here. Who's going to go and go? And Glenn's is then. Of all players, Glenn's fighting as Melia's being stretched off. There's not even a replacement goalkeeping jersey. So Glenn's stre- pulling this jersey off of Melia Alexic as he's unconscious. and <laughs> Could be a neck injury or no, anything. We've got we were, give, give, us your, give us your shirt and gloves. <laughs> and Glenn, yeah, I'd not seen Glenn in goal before. Was he mad keen to go in? Really mad keen to go in. What was that about? I had no idea. And then... It was quite funny when you look back now and you see Glenn kicking the ball out like a goalkeeper with the, the most stylish 
kick out thing you'll see from a keeper, like the style and uh, on the end of the swing when he was kicking it. Kicking it. out it the blade of grass. That's oh, going to... It was ridiculous. And we somehow managed to so did you, hold out. John did Pratt comes on. you saves to make? Can you remember? Yes, he did, yeah. yeah he had saves to make, come out for some crosses, which was quite intimidating when Joe Jordan has, has already, already done, done <laughs> floored one. Um, and then we somehow found our way into extra time. I then had cramp, like debilitating cramp. As I said, I was just over 17 years old and every time I tried to sprint, I got cramp. But we'd already used the sub, so I'm staying, I've got to stay on. So we're probably glenning goal. I'm not able to contribute too much at all. I'm sort of hobbling around and then and then Ozzy gets the ball and curls one in the top corner. Well, for anybody who's, one nil win for who's not seen this, the, the, what's the pitch like? The usual, which is yeah, brown and... Not the usual for now. No, no, usual for that time, brown and bobbly and... Churned uh, up. Churned and, up, yeah. And, and the ball comes, as I remember it... I think it must go in towards Jerry. And the ball comes, the ball's cleared from a uh, and it comes to the back, to the area. back where the keeper's yeah. right, and it's over on Spurs as left as you're attacking. And and what I remember, I've gone back and looked because this is a goal. Is that it Ricky gets it? Impacts on yeah, me. Ricky gets at it at the time. We're we're I don't know. I'm because I'm that tiny touch younger than you. I'm st- I'm still at school in in Aussie's peak peak, and we used to you know shout our dealers if you if you got a great goal into the school, yeah. the bike shed. And what, so the stage when it's on sport, I don't see it until sports night that night. Yeah. And um, I think Ricky gets it on the left. And the great thing that I like looking back at it now is that before the ball reaches, Ozzy's moving off his yeah. man, yeah. edging away yeah. to the edge of the penalty box just to create space. And if we're right, that's Ricky, which I presume it is. If Ozzy's got space, yeah. the ball goes, goes to him immediately. Ozzy. And he kind of just, what, he, he takes he his balance. his foot around it. Curls it, but not without. It's not a powerful. So it's, sort of it's up and down and and curving accurate. right to left into yes. the far corner. Yeah, I don't know. Past um, Gary Bailey, who is a big tall man. Yeah. you know to to get it up and down and round Gary yeah. Bailey from there. But on that pitch, with a with a wall of people in front of him at that to, stage of the game, goal, it was sublime technique. Two hours of football. I don't know if it wins goal of the season or what it wins or what it doesn't but it was an iconic goal that, that kind definitely of captured an, definitely an iconic goal captured um, and then we, we go back to the hotel after that game because we were then playing City at the weekend on the weekend so we were staying Stay up, up. Motcham Hall it was for three or four days nice. and we had these supporters that followed the club around wealthy supporters that wanted to join in with the the party back at so we've gone back to the hotel. We've now got dinner. It's not a party as such. It's we're shattered and the players are allowed to have a drink. Champagne. One of the fellas called Ricky Prosser, who's a famous Tottenham supporter, that is uh, that followed the team around to wherever they went, pre-season tours, post-season tours, European games. Somehow he managed to get himself on the bus and the plane and the, he became a friend of the directors and the manager and the players and he treated the players to a night out and he looked after them and stuff like that he turned up champagne for everybody and champagne's getting passed around so I'm a a, a young boy and a glass of champagne comes to my bit of the table at that stage I'd never drunk alcohol not once not once so and I weren't particularly keen on this I'm still sitting here 
three games into my career with my heroes on a table. The whole thing, you, I'm sharing with Glenn Hoddle. Glenn was my first room partner. Your roommate, okay. So I was a T-boy for Glenn, I punched his shoes, his boots. Um, Does he snore? I, you, he take the fifth. I didn't take the fifth. Yeah, take the fifth I, on that one. I don't think he did. And then, so your cup is already full of joy exactly. at that moment. And, he, and we've won and, and then and the champagne comes down. And I haven't even touched it. I'm not thinking, oh, yes, big time champagne, Charlie. I can knock back the, no, I'm not thinking that, but I had my hand on the glass. And I'm probably at the time thinking if I pretend, I don't... I'll get away with this. I'll get away with this. I don't really want to drink it. I'll just knock the glass around, move it around a bit. And then Terry Off came. He was already in bed. Terry Off. He'd come in, gone to bed. Game Saturday. And he appeared and he, oh, he slumped on me. He literally dragged me and threw me up to the bedroom and he called me this, that, and this and that about being big time and you think you've cracked it and you talk about putting you in your place. And I, was, oh, I didn't even have a chance to say, I haven't touched, I didn't want it and I haven't touched it. It was what lesson that was. But to be that age and thinking. Did you ever talk to me that since? Did somebody put him up that say, let's just, let's just, you know, no, no, I'll tell you what, he came down for a glass of milk. He came down for a glass of milk. And clocked you, unfortunately. Me, sitting there, 17 years and two weeks old, playing like third game in my career, and he thinks I'm sitting there drinking a glass of champagne. Um, and, I, and he tore into me and dragged me up to, to tell me what, so it was perfect. I, I didn't need it, to be honest, because I wasn't ever going to start. And you've never touched a drop of milk since. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so that, the, the whole thing was like a real weird surreal part of your life that school playing Man United at home Man United away and then it will just completely stop but you know there's there's a reason for everything so because you know a life story is hard to get into one big interview whatever difficulty there was about the leaving of your true love and, and ending up at Coventry I want to hone in on how many hat-tricks did you score in your career? One. Just the one. Well, this is the one. Yeah, I know. This is I the know. one. Yeah. Because, again, if people aren't aware, that you know, England's side at that moment and, and during your development as a footballer and for a good half of your career, and they're going to crop up later in your story, you know, Liverpool are exceptional. They're, they've got a stranglehold oh, on the title. They, Europe. Um, they consistently win the European yeah. Cup. They're pretty damn good in... Biggest names, best managers, best players. It was... So how does Coventry beat them 4-0 and what's your role in that? I don't know. That? Honestly don't know because it was my first game against Liverpool. It was most of the team had never played against Liverpool. Most of us had never been on Match of the Day and the Match of the Day cameras were at Highfield Road that day. You never knew it was on Match of the Day, even as players. So you turn up at Highfield Road and the, the lorries were there and you think, oh, we're on Match of the Day. It was... So already you're yeah, like... You're playing not... Liverpool, Match of the Day. Now, what are you thinking? That's not... Other teams that's not get hammered. Um, we had lower league players that not played against Liverpool. We had Stuart Pearce, who just joined from Wildstone, Mickey Jin from Peterborough, Chura Peak from Lincoln, um, and and Dave Bamber came from Blackpool. Myself, although I'd played those early games for Spurs. After that, it, it was back to reserve football for a couple of years, and and then a twenty game spell in the first team in my last year at Spurs. Um, I hadn't been on match of the day that, that often either I think I'd been on playing with Spurs and then suddenly you're December and we were flying as well we were really winning games scoring goals bit of a surprise package because half of these players no one had known too much about I think we were about 6th or 7th in the league 
we were expected to get relegated because we had Bobby Gould and as a new manager in the top division and all these new unheard of players that went on to have really good careers. And we were three new up in about 20, 25 minutes. And, and like, I mean, can we describe what kind of Liverpool we're talking about? Who are we talking about, do you remember? Oh, yes. Um, I feel Neil would have been playing. Mm-hmm. Because this Lawson, is... Hanson, Hanson. This is a year where they're... I mean... Douglas and Rush. How far Sonny off Lee. this is... Sooness. Is the brilliant performance. It's not the, it's not the era of the 5-0 against Nottingham Forest. It, but this was an, December 83. So it's an era when... No, they, the era of 5-0 Forest was when we... Beat them in the cup final. Beat them in the cup final. So you're, we're talking about them this team was better than that one. Won the Peter. European Cup in '81, mm-hmm. and um, got to the final again, I suppose, in '83. So this is a group of players who have consistently been yeah. European Top Cup finalists or winners. Yeah. And yeah. and so did they not turn up? Partly, but we but we blew them away. We were lucky in the fact that Robbo made a couple of mistakes early, early on as well. That led to goals. Um, we took every chance that came our way. Backed by a full house at Highfield Road, it was it was kind of the, the perfect. They were below par. We were playing well, confident, and played really well. And the idea was to get at them early on to see if they fancied it. And do you which remember your, they did? Do you remember your hat trick? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Go on. Eh? Yeah, the first one would have been. Dave Bennett, I think, went through on a one-two, and it never came off, and it bubbled free in the eighteen-yard box, and I, I think I slid that. That was one of the goals, and I slid in and hooked it with a bit of a miss hit that trundled past. Top yourself down here. There was a knockdown in the penalty area from probably Dave Bamber that I turned and swivelled and got a decent strike on. Um, again, probably Robbala might have been doing better. I think Nicky Platner had bundled one in over the line as well with a again that shot that wasn't really powerful and then this sound as if it was like you know know, yeah a combination of luck and Uh, oh there was in it it. yeah nicky got the first didn't he Uh, because they were grobel r kennedy mark lawrenson alan hansen phil neil steve nickel sammy lee graham soonis ronnie (laughs) wheel and ian rush kennedy leash manager joe fagan you were avramovich yeah um, who later went on to do really well owning chelsea Different, no, different, no, different. Yeah, different, yeah. Different, okay. <laughs> uh, Brian Roberts, Nicky Platner, <laughs> Trevor Pete. Um, who's the centre half? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Sam Allardyce? Big Sam, yeah. Big Sam. Yeah. Stuart Pierce, Pierce, Dave Bennett, he'd go on to have his day in the sun at the cup final, wouldn't he? Mickey Jean, Jerry Daly. Yeah. What a footballer yeah. he was. Yes, Dave Bamber and Terence Gibson. Yeah. With Graham Withy on the bench. Yeah. I, it just stuck out to me as a moment that, you know, I wanted to pick on for you because, you know, that. You know, after having felt ill-treated at Spurs and, and, and let go and unsure of Coventry in the background, having to move there, live there, buy a house, all that was, kind of I stuff. I thought it was an underground system in Coventry. And I thought it was the I was looking for the Century Line in. And you Coventry do, and, and you do this, <laughs> and you must have thought like, "There's proof that I'm going to make it. That I'm I'm a top footballer." Yeah, I can't. When I left Spurs, I was annoyed. That, that hence what I was talking about earlier about my love for, for I fell out of love with them because yeah. I played twenty games in the first team. When I played those first games as a seventeen-year-old, I got a four-year contract. Um, when I, my contract ended, and I didn't play in the first team for over two years after those initial three games, and that that was Steve Archibald and Garth Cook signed. Mm. So 
I was 17, 18, 19. I'm not going to... And the, the way that they performed was... It, it they was were scoring me. goals. Partnership. You were winning tournaments. They were and, and, they, and they were working with... They were, they were a they duo, were, weren't they? Exactly. They were yeah. brilliant. Yeah. But in my last year, I got back in and played 20-odd games. And then was offered a one-year contract with a 50-quid-a-week rise. And that was thumbed through the post. Mm. And I just felt that I wasn't being treated mm. accordingly for someone that had played the, the last 20 games of the first division season that mm. year to open the post one morning and take it or leave it off of one year and 50 quid a week rise. And, and the, but the, you know, the Coventry experiment... I mean, Coventry for three is, years, is, contract, is same, less money. Less money, but playing. Yes, and playing. I felt wanted at, at Coventry. Well, you know, we sat recently um, over in Dublin with Robbie Keane and... You know, he left the club he loved in Liverpool. Yeah. And he, he talked about not having regrets because although he'd wanted to have the success he's had in other places there, and that was the team that mattered to him, he didn't have regrets going back because it was only about playing, 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 playing. Exactly, yeah. And every time he's moved, it's because he feels he's not going to play enough and he could play more another game and that the money comes, but playing is the yeah. thing. And that's part yeah. of what's driven you yeah. throughout your Life and it's part of what because you fifty something goals in a couple of seasons at Coventry, yeah. yeah. and and United pick you up and I'm interested about the United. I want you to paint pictures yeah. of the two Uniteds you saw. I had this idea that I was going to leave Coventry because I was you say fifty two goals in 104 appearances in two and a half seasons and the last half of the season the speculation was I could have gone nearly came back to Spurs. Um, they signed me for seventy thousand. Didn't want to pay the two hundred and fifty at one stage that it was to get me back. Um, Peter Shreves had become manager. It was his idea to get me back, so I was I was keen on that, of course. But that didn't happen. And then the the more goals I got, the higher the price went. So the less chance of going back to Spurs. But and I kind of knew that United were interested. And then I had a phone call from a former Coventry teammate who was now at Manchester United to ask Ben Atkinson. Peter Barnes said. Ron would, wants to know, would you be interested in coming to Man United? Yeah, of course. So it was, at that stage, I, at the time, and I, I feel it now, it, it was justified. Me moving to a club, starting my career at Spurs, decent goal-scoring record when I was played in the right areas of the pitch. Proved myself at Coventry um, in a relegation-threatened team for two seasons. We survived on the last day of the season. Um, 19 goals in those two seasons, then 14, I think it was, in, the, in half a season. Again, in a team that was fighting relegation. 14 goals was harder than any of the players' tallies at Old Trafford when I joined them. It was the season they'd won 10, the first 10 games of the season and looked like they were going to win the league. By the time I joined them in January, it was highly unlikely they were going to win the league. They still had a chance, but it, was, it wasn't likely. So I probably joined a team that had peaked that season. Set the scene, who's the coach? Ron Atkinson. Mm-hmm. Um, Ron bought me. And I, I was kind of feel aggrieved that I never got the chance that I should have done. I went there full of confidence. Then with United still having a chance of winning the, the title for the first time in 20, well over 20 years. And my goal-scoring record that season in a team that didn't create as many chances as Man United would was far better than the, the players that were already at Old Trafford. It was struggling with confidence and stuff like that. I got thrown in against Liverpool for my first game um, within a week of joining. I say thrown in, yeah, away to Liverpool. We drew 1-1 and that was it to the end of the season. Mm. Um, another player, Peter Davenport, was signed. 
Mark Hughes was still at the club. Um, Frank Stapleton, Mark Hughes left, was going to leave in the summer to go to Barcelona. By the time I got, we got towards the end of the season, and I played at Newcastle. We, my first game, uh, it was my second game for the club, but three months apart, probably longer than the other one. And we were three new up, I think, before I seriously injured my knee with two or three games to go that season. So it took me a year to make my home debut. Mm-hmm. I never played it for United at home with Ron as manager. So it kind of, it doesn't take long. And it's, it still happens now. And I have a lot of sympathy for players that go to new clubs that don't make an, an, an immediate impact through no reason of their own, are then written off and are then constant speculation they're going to be leaving. So before I'd settled in, before I'd played a home game for club, I was on this list of players that were going to be leaving the club without hardly ever getting a game. And I see it time and time again now. So I, I will stick up for the players that we talk about on our Spanish football. Mm-hmm. Zaza was one. There's one me at Ralph Sausedad. Oh. I see one me flop at Southampton. Didn't score in 22 appearances. He started two games. Mm-hmm. So give, you, you have to give people a chance. You can't just say... So put flesh in the bones of what you've talked so about. Because off, you're, talking about, you're talking about a human being's self-regard and confidence and... You know, irrespective of your level of talent, if the mental side, the application, the self-belief, the willingness to take risks, the willingness not to hide, all of these are eroded if you feel that the person who's employed you isn't interested or doesn't yeah. want to give you a chance. And Is there's, that right? there's always a mystery about it as well. I went and saw Ron on a few occasions and he, he kind of muffled on. He, he didn't really give me a, an honest answer. And then apart from one day he said to me, I signed the wrong player from Coventry. I should have signed Cyril, Cyril Regis. Yeah, by all means, make a choice. There's no comparison between me and Cyril make, was a player. It's totally different. And so he was just being flippant. He was trying to be clever. It didn't help. And I was sub one game and I'd been sub for a few matches. And he said, I was actually going to the toilet before the game in the changing room. And he come up and he was going to the toilet. He went, do you know why have you a sub kid? So I said, no. By that time I wasn't really, I could have been clever and said, I'm playing in a few different positions. I can quit. So I said, no. He said, because you're a lucky mascot. So I thought, cheers, that's like, so I'm not going to get on. And if, yeah. So it, it kind of, you can sit, tell to this day, it still rattles me cage that you go there full of hope, full of confidence, and in, in, in the way that someone can manage you and, and respect you can totally... It's a cheap way to treat another human being, really, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was no explanation for it. It was, it, it was just weird how... It, everything went so south so quickly without any obvious reason. Paint a picture of what the environment was like around you, though, because you, unfortunately, because you were either rehabbing or waiting for your chance, well, the you, rehabbing, were, you were a I pair of eyes, you were a witness to... Yeah, the rehabbing was ridiculous when you look back now, but it was, I think it was about three games to go for the end of the season. I had surgery on my knee, I had to have further surgery in the summer, and then I was expected to return back pre-season on my own accord, fit enough to train again. And I did. There was no physio. There was no rehabilitation at the club. It was... Just get on with it. Yeah, come back and see if you're fit for day one of pre-season. Which is bizarre. I was running up and down hills and doing what a surgeon told me I could do and couldn't do. And then you turn up at pre-season and that was it. Off you <laughs> just had two operations on me knee in the summer. Um, again, that's just a, for the listeners how the times have changed now. It's... And then I went back pre-season and the, the, the same thing continued. I got a game at Leicester. We hadn't 
we were in the relegation position mm. just before Ron got the sack. Manchester United. Right? Yes, and then we hadn't won. I got another game at Leicester, so now my first three games have probably come about six or seven months apart. They've all been away from home, and then we got a draw at Leicester. First points for a few games, or first point of the season, or something, something really weird like that. And then I was dropped again the following week, and we had Southampton at home. And they won five nil. We won, oh, we won five nil. But the, but the and it was always going to be an easier game than the the one the week before, the ones the week before that, um, where the confidence was going away. We get a draw, a good draw at Leicester, and then I'm thinking oh, I might get a game against Southampton, who were another team that were probably struggling at the time below us or something. And it five nil, and I was back on the bench. But again. what was the I'm regime like? What was the regime like? Because. What, what's emerged now is that the new regime, which we'll talk about in a minute, came in and found slackness and, and decay and, and players who were drinking or players who were kind of allowed to do what they wanted to do. The Ron Atkinson, it strikes me as somebody who had his mind on greater things or on himself or whatever, but it wasn't the right regime at a big football club? Yeah, no, or is that was, unfair? No, no, it's not. It's, as I said, I think that team peaked that season. You know, they won the first 10 games. They were, they were flying... And then when I look back now, the, the, the players never be, were the same again afterwards. You know, the core of players that were going to have to be changed. It was slack. I mean, I'd been brought up at Spurs and then gone to Coventry. And the same principles were there in, in place. So it was unusual to see. And then when I went to Wimbledon, the same principles applied. It was only when I went to Manchester United and people could drift out and train when they wanted to. The manager could drift out and train when he wanted to. For instance, a, a perfect example would be travel down to London for a game with, with Coventry or travel up north with Spurs and stay in a hotel overnight. There would be a set dinner time at six o'clock. There would be a menu that you could choose from. It would be super melon, chicken or steak. It was the same for, for both teams. When I went to United, my first trip down to London, we stayed in the Royal Lancaster Hotel. I'm sharing a room with Mickey Duxbury and I've said to him, what time's dinner? He went, what, what do you mean, what time's dinner? I said, well, he went, no, no, just there's four or five different restaurants here or we can order room service. So, oh, strange. So we ended up, as you would, totally abused. We had a big strawberry ghetto and a big strawberry milkshake and steak and Dover sole and lobster. And it, was, it was just with no, normally... No I remember, community, no structure? No, no structure, no community, uh, team community. I remember Jerry Daly, going back to Jerry, ordering a prawn cocktail... The choice at Coventry was super melon, chicken or steak, and Jerry fancied a prawn cocktail. And Bobby Gould tore into him and called him a playboy. <laughs> <laughs> and Jerry had to pay for his own prawn cocktail. <laughs> so now, because um, where did Jerry Bobby. come from? United. Yeah. United. So it was like, yeah, use the phone, don't have to pay the bill. At Coventry, never no. you. Yeah, use phone the home or phone or phone, 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 wherever you want. So we now, if we get to the hotel in London about four o'clock, and we're leaving at midday, one o'clock the next day. We don't see each other until that, that time. So you've had dinner, breakfast, everything's room service. The big tray's coming into your room on the trolley with a big silver platter thing on top with your lobster and prawns under it. And then at the end of it, Mickey Duxbury empties the entire minibar into his bag. And Mickey's not even a drinker. And I'm thinking, I said, what are you doing? He went, oh, this is for the lads, the drinkers, on the way home on the bus. So I said, well, I don't, no, no charge. Oh, no, no, of course not. So then, of course, on the way back, driving up north the following, after the game, with little miniatures from the minibars. The... Yeah, that was that. So it was the Coventry and the Spurs thing was similar. So that was an example That's a of shock. Yeah, to the how system. different things are. 
that has to breed slackness. If 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 there are no rules and you can kind of do what you want, no matter what kind of pro you are, subconsciously, well, it's a laid-back atmosphere. You know, yeah. defeat and victory must be more similar bedfellows than than uh, victory's routine and defeat is yeah. a disaster. No, if that atmosphere is so slack. Clearly it was different because it wasn't like it at Spurs. It wasn't like it at Coventry. Yeah. It was just like it. Now, whether it had always been like that on the run, I, I doubt it. I probably don't think it had because he'd had success with a group of players that had grown with him, like Norman Whiteside and Paul McGrath, and, mm. the, the, and probably the whole thing became a little bit too comfortable in terms of team selection, people fighting for a place they didn't have to. They were, there was a group that were runs friends as mm. much as anything else. So it was, it was different. You're not the first. In this series of podcasts, again, we, we, we had a lovely time with Charlie Nick, who explained why Arsenal in the, you know, Kenny Douglas and Soonest were sent to Liverpool as a place for you, you. His agent took him to, to United and they sat down to lunch um, or dinner, it was, yeah. at Ron Atkinson and, and Ron um, took a pendant from his chain around his neck and um, took out his gold toothpick and started picking away <laughs> while Charlie and he were talking about it. And Charlie says now he's looking at him going... No, you ain't from me, mate. <laughs> we had the, the, the talking about old training grounds, the cliff. I don't know how that worked. Because the cliff goes back years, doesn't it? Yeah. Cheltenham and Jules. It's one pitch. When we were up there yeah. um, last season with Quinton Fortune, watching under 16's play, um, filming a documentary. Yeah, we used to have a triangle behind the cliff, and they called it Wembley. And it was a little triangle with a goal on. But no resemblance to the grass was never cut. It wasn't the type of surface for a football pitch, but it would be a little area where you could go and practice a bit of shooting with a goalkeeper that was a field next to the pitch. It was called Wembley. It was, it was taking the piss, I guess, calling it Wembley, but it was a little triangle that you, you could go up and it was, it was no size whatsoever either. How does so, Manchester United, we know now, know. allow that to have been the case yeah, for so long? I don't long? know. I, think, I can remember first team and youth team in half a pitch and first team and reserves in half a pitch each doing training sessions or, or someone running around the pitch waiting to train by one training pitch. And Ron was always always there or something? Yeah, Ron's office overlooked. His, Ron's office his... overlooked and Mick Brown would come. It was three some mornings in the winter, middle of winter in November, January, February, March, <laughs> December. The old sun lamp would go on in Ron's office and Mick Brown would say, oh, Gaffer's be out in a minute. So we've got to wait. Because well, Mick didn't, we were fanny about why the Sunday finished and then Ron would come out and same training every day, bit of bump, diddly bump, quick blast on the banjo and some happy feet to finish. What? <laughs> exactly. I think bump, it was, the, it was shooting practice, father side and some sprints. <laughs> but they were called? Bump, diddly bump was the shooting practice. So <laughs> that he, that, that he would come out and write, right, Okay, chaps, we're going to have a bit of bump, dilly bump. <laughs> a quick uh, blast on the banjo. Which one? And some small sided game. And then blast some ha- happy, the happy feet to finish, which would have been sprints. <laughs> 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 and that was day in, day out. Nothing to do with a game before, nothing to do with a game that's coming up. It was literally well, a quick blast on the banjo, a quick bump, dilly bump, and some happy feet. It was every single day. Because no one knew who was playing, although they all knew who was playing. There was no organisation, there was no planning for the next game, there was no team shape, there was no tactics, it was just 
the same players knew that they were playing in it, you know, and this. Because that wasn't affection, you know, because you smiled for the first time because you were not. Oh, no, as a player, you that. loved it. It was all you wanted to do. There was the three things you wanted to do. Shooting practice, a bit of a keep ball session or a small-sided game and some sprints. But it was not conducive to organisation. Not, not, not and tactical, games not learning from the last no. mistakes of the last game or what. So the new broom, the new broom. Look, you're, you're going to last, you know, to the end of a season with Sir Alex Ferguson, Fergie there. Yeah. But one... Who who the hell was he when he was? I know I grew up in Aberdeen. Yeah, yeah. He was everything to 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 me and people. You know, like I, me. I knew, I knew who he was. I wasn't daft. I was a big fan of. But impact wise, um, I can't imagine that people were going. No, well, hey, when he got it, Gordon Strachan said, "Oh, that's me, fuck them." Yeah, yeah, they they. And then Gordon told us, that, "Oh, they were." He cat- didn't tell us what happened, but he told us what to expect. And and I, at the time, yeah, it wasn't a massive name. It wasn't a surprise. He'd been linked with a job. There was speculation that Rob yeah. was on borrowed time. So he was the name that kept coming up. We'd known about his success at Aberdeen. And any manager that, that walks in through the door, the first thing a player wants to do is a first impression and, and impress and, and hope he, he fancies you. Hence the reason Gordon said he knew it wasn't going to work. They'd no. obviously seen it happen. And yeah, reg- regular things. Door. Yeah. Regular so things. It, it was... Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really care. I was just glad of. What did you notice? What did you notice? You know, if you oh, think straight about, away, no, yeah. straight. There was in, instantly. Tell me the we, Our first away trip was uh, actually, funny enough, a place where I ended up living, where I'd lived before in Epping, little post house hotel. We were playing West Ham. It was the sensible place to stay. It was near to yeah. Upton Park. It's not a great hotel. It's still not a great hotel. But Manchester United stayed there because it was convenient. And the first night that away trip was super melon chicken and steak it was <laughs> and there was a meeting time for dinner yeah. there was a meeting time and you went together and a meeting for the next day yeah um, we ate together and everything was back to normal again there was no empty. Bar? no no, me- no no they were empty already they were uh, emptied yeah they were emptied so it wasn't even the two he's never been a fan of players drinking <laughs> yeah why never never yeah why shouldn't be a surprise you do Training ground, what did you notice? Because you're, because my imagination tells me that you're there, age 24-ish. Yes. Ish. Yeah. yeah. And going, right, the, the Vangel player's gone, there's my chance. Well, the treatment so you, room overlooked the pitch as well. So yeah. for three days of the week, half the first thing would be watching training through the window. Mm. And then turn up on Thursday and Friday and play Saturday. So that changed, that treatment room cleared out because a new manager. Um, and then we suddenly have the... Just the, pause there. What do you mean that, you know, the room cleared out? What, he's a Lazarus or he touched them and they were healed? Or? Yeah. No, no. Explain. No, they knew they couldn't get away with what, what had been going on before. Because you could just um, go, Let's, I've got a twinge, yeah, I need no a raw, but I better not train. X-ray was right down, a long road down, wasn't it? Getting an X-ray if you had a problem up until... So you could just swing the lead if you wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah it happened at a, a lot of clubs I was at. Yeah. There was players that... that Particularly that if you're a senior given, player and you said, I, I'm, yeah. listen, I, I'm, I'm not right, yeah. you know, yeah. and I'll and you could take a quiet day off in the warmth. Yeah, yeah. Um, that cleared out, so everybody was miraculously recovered and fit and raring to go, and then instead of ambling around waiting for the manager to come out or players to, to come out and train, it was from day one, he, he read the rule book. What were the rules? Um, all the same rules that were Spurs and Coventry. Ah, 
So it was just normal procedures. Um, yeah, exactly. The, the basic requirements that were expect, I, I thought were expected everywhere and probably were. And so it was timekeeping. It was particularly with regard to training. You had to be out when he came out. So he didn't want to be coming out and, where's so-and-so, where's so-and-so? Oh, what's, oh, he's just pulled up and he's up in the treatment room getting a strap mm. in. It was 10.30, 10, might be 10 o'clock, 10.30, but it was 10.30. He was out at 20 past, and at 10.30, we were be the start, none of this. You must be there and so. be ready. Yes, so, and then he had the squares painted now, out. This, You know this gets me going because Michael Carrick sat down and, and gave a brilliant description of what, you and I know about the power of the rondo in, in Spanish yeah. football and you know, how it's some of the the beauty of what we see, never mind the successes, is attributable to the work they do in the rondos and the chase ball in the middle. For anybody who doesn't know, one or two in the middle, six, seven, eight round the circle and yeah. the ball moving and blah, blah, blah. And then Michael talked about boxes. But you're saying you were there when the Alex Ferguson's first box arrived at the cliff. What, what is it? What does it mean? What well, does it, it look was, like? It was convenient because if you had to be out 10 minutes before training started, yeah. with no balls or nothing about, you wouldn't really wouldn't be that enthusiastic about standing no. out, would you? 20 past 10. You're waiting for the manager to come out with no balls out. Just standing around hands in pockets. Yeah, so all of a sudden these boxes appeared and bag of balls. And you were encouraged without being told you had to do it. It was something to do before the manager came out that started off with, oh, what's this? And then to, in the future, becoming, get in, get changed, get out, get in the squares. Just talk about the box. As two come out. Describe the box. It would probably be about 15 yards by 15 yards. Right. And there would be four or five, six of them. Mm -hmm. So you would probably have seven or eight around the outside. And as people came out, they would then take the bib and go in the middle. Um, you, you win the ball back, it's one touch on the outside, and then if you give the ball away, you go in the middle. And, and it, it killed 10, 15, 20 minutes. When the manager came out, if he liked what he was seeing, he'd let it go on for another 10 or 15 minutes. Um, but it was literally something to occupy the players, to, as opposed to, why am I going to stand out there? He's not out there yet. Which to, you, was, to you, was it competitive or only a warm-up lark? Mixture, really. A mixture. No one wanted to be in the middle, so that makes it competitive. Mm -hmm. But it, it served its purpose. It, it was I'd done it before at other clubs, but without the squares painted. Mm. So you would go out, there'd be a bag of balls and, and someone with a pig in the middle, you know, that sort of thing. But it'd be a, a, a circle that you would form rather than a painted area where the ball wasn't allowed to go out the line and stuff like that. So, but it, it, was, it, was, it was worth having because we enjoyed doing it. I'd imagine you'd, you out there you'd be good at the pressing at the beginning in the middle, you know, being astute and quick and, and mobile, you know, low centre of gravity. I'd imagine you'd been good at that. Yeah, but you didn't ever want to be in the middle. <laughs> you, you, you didn't want to be the one that... You'd argue about who should go in if someone gave the ball away or someone... It, it was that sort of thing. So it's a shot it helps your skill. It, it's, it, I've no doubt of its value. Yeah. Um, there are loads of other things you can do in it amongst it as well with another attacking player in the middle yeah. got to so there's different variations of it but that was an indication from him at that time that this is how we're going to go this is how it's going to work in the future you're more than welcome you didn't have to use it but it, it by and large players do enjoy 
you know, not having that pressure, the manager telling you what to do, and, uh, kicking a ball about and, and having a knockabout before the real stuff started. So it got you out there earlier and, and it, earlier and earlier because... It's, it's an early sign of a culture changing. And it's a box that has lasted from that day to this yeah. and accounts for some of the passing and, and the pinging of the ball, first-time control that you've seen. It's unsupervised as well, so it was almost like street football again where we didn't need referees and coaches when we were kids. You often didn't need goalposts, did you? You, put, you made your own. That was kind of how it was. This was the new thing. It's unsupervised. It's, it doesn't need a referee. You referee it yourself. You organise who goes in Good the for spirit. Role. Good for team yeah, unity. Yeah, yeah. Did anybody stand out? I'm guessing. No, no, no. Olsen, Strachan, yeah, no. Robson... All good players, but no, there was no real weakness or strength. It was just, this is different. No, This it, is not waiting for him to come out of the treatment room. The manager, to get his top in his tan up, this is proper training at a proper time, appropriate stuff, planning for preparing for games, working on mistakes from previous games. It was Again, it was, it was just the same stuff that Keith Birkinshaw did, that Bobby Gould did. It was just different, and Ron was the exception at that time at Manchester United. It, it ends up not working for you to the extent that you're, you know, you're about to quit football. You know, big four. Yeah, I gave Fergie, up with the whole Manchester United thing. I, with Fergie, he gave me far more respect. He didn't buy. He wasn't the manager that bought me, but he gave me opportunities. And when I say I gave up, that's probably the wrong phrase. I'd lost faith in the project. I pretty soon after. So Alex Ferguson took over. I was constantly on this list of players that he wanted out. And that was a reflection on him. It was just made up list from that carried on from when Ron was manager that the whole speculation always at United was who they were going to buy, who they were going to sell. Mm. And it, it was kind of it, it destroyed your self esteem to continue to see your name on a list with, you know, ten, twelve a lot of players, but the same names on it all the time. And and I kind of made up my mind that at the end of the season it wasn't for me. Even though I had more playing opportunities and scored a goal against Arsenal at Old Trafford, which is, if I'm going to get the one goal against Arsenal at the Strip, why not against the Gunners? It does, yes. Um, <laughs> so it kind of, but I have no complaints with how Stradix Ferguson treated me in his time, but it was, it was a lost cause. I was a lost cause. The whole Manchester United thing for me was a lost cause, and I, I needed to. to, to to get away. So we fell out big time at the end. You lost for, it completely. For 24 too. hours. We had a game at Chesterfield in, for the reserves pre-season. I'd always sell my house. I was living in a hotel. I'd made up my mind I was leaving. I wanted to go, same as we talked about earlier, and play regular again. I didn't want to fanny about playing. I hated reserve football. There was no meaning to it. There was no purpose to it. No one was interested. No one criticised you. No one gave you any credit. No one cared about your results. And I wanted to play. I was aware that it was a short career, mm. and every single game I was going to play, I wanted it to to mean something. To mean something, and I would. I had too long on that at United, in and out, and get an opportunity here and there. And we had a reserve game at Chesterfield, so my mind's all over the place. Wife and daughter have moved back down to London, waiting for me to get a move somewhere. And and this game at Chesterfield, we actually got. It was a, playing their first team. So it's Chesterfield, uh, Chesterfield first game, it's Manchester United Reserves, young team. I think me and John Sieverbeck were the only two sort of senior players. Mm-hmm. And we got there late, stuck in traffic, literally 10, 15 minutes before kickoff. It's a full house at Saltergate, their stadium. 
12, 15,000 people because it's rocking it's ready to ready to turn and away United. We were, I can't remember exactly, it was a 5 4 or a 4 3, but whatever it was, we were losing 3 0 or 4 0 after about half an hour. And we overturned it and came back and won. Not um, bad. So at half time, we've got this horrendous journey. We got there late, straight onto the pitch, young team, first team opposition, men, senior players. And we came back, second half, and warmed up. We'd warmed up from the journey, got, got our legs going, and, and ended up winning. And Fergie was there. And I thought it would have been something that he would have really have liked the so difficulty, the journey. The glorious Fergie the Man United fight and, and he came in and he, he went berserk. And he said, I want to see you all in my office first thing in the morning. And we went in and he read the right act again and said how, what a disgrace we were to the club, the history. He really let rip. And I, as John Sieberbeck, similar, exactly the same Danish fullback. Yeah, Danish international Danish playing. For, he was a terrific player as well. He, we signed the same day and left us pretty much the same day and we were treated exactly the, the same way. It was a, a weird situation. And John didn't say anything. Um, and I stood up and said my point and said that I thought we deserved the younger players deserved credit that you know explained for how we got their late blah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. and we went out to Amaran Tongs and I told him he could shove his football up his ass and stormed out slammed the door in front of all the other players and said that was it I was jacking it in and then I went out outside and people in the office and change rooms had heard the row and Mark Hughes and Clayton Blackmore, my age, um, who I got on with, took me for a game of golf. That I didn't even play golf, but they, I was in this crappy hotel, wife and daughter back in London. Pretty miserable to go back and reflect on your road. Pissed off with Fergie. Yeah, yeah. So they took me for a game of golf. The story develops there. I go back to the hotel, ring Paul and my, my wife, tell her what's happened. She said, oh, Bobby Gould's rang you. So I said, oh, what do you, what do you want? And he'd just take the Wimbledon job. So I'm thinking, what did he want? I'm thinking, please. <laughs> Back in London, a bloke that likes me, yeah. who bought me at Coventry, treated me well, got me playing well, had faith. So I said, what does he want? She went, I don't know. She, he's left a number. So I rang him and he said, do you fancy it? I said, oh, what? yes, yes, I do. Yeah, of course I do. So I said, I was even going to ring you for advice because my head's coming off. I don't know what I'm doing. So he said, look, we know, you know we can't pay you first bit of negotiation. When he said, do you fancy us? She said, oh, well, make me an offer. I'm not United, Bob, yeah. but, yeah. you know, yeah. Wimbledon, um, come on. And we spoke, and he said, how much do you think he wants? So I said, I, I don't Fergie. know. Fergie. I said, I've no idea. Don't know. So he said, all right, leave it with me. So I went in, the next, and I was going to do this anyway. It wasn't because I there was a chance that Wimbledon were going to buy me. I slept on it, and I went in the next morning, and I said... I got in there early, and of course he was there. And I knocked on the door, and he said, first you in, even then, first probably, in? yeah, yeah. We never seen him come in because none of us got in that early. And he said, um, "Would you want?" So I said, "I'm coming to apologise. I was out of yeah. order, but I still stand by what we, <laughs> what I say." Uh, hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 